Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jeff Singer. I'm a practicing general surgeon and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. At his 2022 State of the Union address, President Biden focused the nation's attention on a national mental health crisis. Mood disorders and suicidal thoughts and behaviors have been arising at alarming levels for years. The pandemic and government mandated lockdowns increased anxiety, isolation, and despair while also reducing access to mental health services. Approximately 40% of Americans currently state they cannot access mental health services, particularly services requiring drug-based therapy. Clinical psychologists can play a greater role in meeting those needs. States require clinical psychologists to obtain a doctorate in clinical psychology, either a PhD or PsyD. Many states also require clinical psychologists to complete a postdoctoral clinical fellowship for one to two years. Satisfying that process that states impose can take from eight to 12 years. Some federal agencies, five states and the territory of Guam authorize competent clinical psychologists to prescribe medications that affect mood and mental functions. Those jurisdictions refer to such psychologists as prescribing psychologists or medical psychologists or RXPs. However, most states prohibit competent clinical psychologists from prescribing such medication. Critics of the idea argue that clinical psychologists lack the necessary background in the medical sciences and in pharmacology to distinguish between physical and mental ailments and to safely prescribe mental health medications. Proponents counter that clinical psychologists are trained to be aware of physical diseases that can have psychological manifestations and routinely consult physicians when necessary, and that prescribing psychologists undergo rigorous didactic and clinical training in psychopharmacology. To address the mental health crisis, should state lawmakers expand the scope of practice of competent clinical psychologists to include prescribing? Joining us to discuss this are Dr. Beth Romreimer, a clinical psychologist, chair and president of the board of directors of the National Register of Health Service Psychologists and CEO of the Illinois Association of Prescribing Psychologists. Dr. Rebecca Brendel, associate professor, assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, director of the master's degree program at Harvard Medical School's Center for Bioethics, and president and distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. Dr. Thomas D. Lee, a psychiatrist at the Ascension Alexian Brothers Center for Mental Health in Arlington, Illinois, who supervises psychology fellows in the Ascension RXP Fellowship Program, and Dr. Claudia Mosier, a prescribing psychologist licensed in Illinois and Louisiana. After each of our experts share their thoughts, we will engage in a conversation and take questions from viewers. Please submit your questions on the Cato event website or on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag Cato Health. Beth, you've been advocating for prescribing psychologists for decades and probably know as much about the history of prescribing psychologists as anyone. So why don't you start us off? Thank you so much, Jeff. Good afternoon. The Sheriff of Cook County, Tom Dart, has famously said, I, am the, I run the largest mental health facility in the country, but for the Los Angeles County Jail. Nearly half of the men and women who are incarcerated in the Cook County Jail are diagnosed with a mental illness, and there's a scarcity of mental health resources to care for these individuals. When I've organized a panel of prescribing psychologists and behavioral health directors of federally qualified healthcare centers to speak to an audience, at the NAMI State Conference in Chicago in 2012, the NAMI audience enthusiastically cheered us, even standing up on their seats. They told us that they were excited to learn that there could be more providers of comprehensive integrative mental health care. 
When I talked with the police chief of one of our more rural Illinois police departments in 2014, as we were lobbying for our prescriptive authority legislation, he first asked me, why didn't you call me sooner? Then he said to me, here in central Illinois, our officers use their guns maybe once in a career, yet they train every week at the shooting range and are tested on shooting acuity every three months. But what my officers see every day are members of our community who are suffering with mental illness, who are homeless, and they have nowhere to go. So our officers have to take them to the county jail. They don't belong there. We need mental health resources. I will personally go to our Illinois state legislature in uniform and talk with the legislators, and I'll bring my deputy as well as the sheriff and his deputy. I will call the president of the Illinois Chiefs Police Association, the Illinois Sheriff's Association, and the Fraternal Order of Police so that they will support you too. In one of our 2014 legislative hearings, a psychologist who was opposed to this legislation talked about how psychologists just needed to work more closely with psychiatrists. One legislator told him, you want to continue the way things are and have always been. We can't do that. Our system is not meeting the needs of our citizens who are suffering from mental illness. We have to do something different. After our prescriptive authority legislation passed in 2014, clinical psychologist, Dr. Lori Rickman-Jones, who had served as the senior policy advisor for behavioral health in Governor Pat Quinn's office wrote to me, just a quick note, Beth, to congratulate you for your work on this historic legislation. You should be commended for your tenacity and your willingness to work with the other trade associations to find common ground to make this happen. Most importantly, we will now have the ability to improve access to thousands more in our state who need care. I know that your work here in Illinois will create a pathway for other states likely to follow. In the fall of 2014, I traveled around the state of Illinois and met with hospital CEOs and hospital medical directors, many of whom are psychiatrists, to create clinical training opportunities for our prescribing psychology fellows. Each medical director to a person said to me, I was your most vociferous opponent while you were lobbying for your legislation. But now that it's the law, look, we need you. Let's just do this together. And we have. NAMI has told us that the average delay between the onset of symptoms and treatment in the U.S. is about 11 years. Why? Because approximately 150 million Americans reside in mental health professional shortage areas, HPSAs. And despite the passage of the Mental Health Parity and Addictions Equity Act of 2008, more than 30 million adults and youth living with mental illness in the U.S. went without treatment in 2020. While there are approximately 106,000 licensed clinical psychologists, there are less than a quarter of that number, just 25,000 psychiatrists in the workforce. 60% of U.S. counties have no psychiatrists. The federal government estimates that we need an additional 45,000 psychiatrists to meet the prescriptive mental health needs of our citizens. And the shortage is exacerbated by the fact that more than half of those currently licensed as psychiatrists are older than 55. Because of the shortage of psychiatrists, a large percentage of psychotropic medications are prescribed by someone other than a psychiatrist. Fully 79% of antidepressants, 87% of anxiolytics, and 57% of antipsychotics are prescribed by medical providers who are highly competent, but most often have relatively little specialized training in the diagnosis and treatment of mental illness. It's not surprising, therefore, that 50% of depression diagnoses are missed 
by primary care physicians, and 50% of patients who are treated by PCPs are still depressed after a year of treatment. In a remarkable 2012 study, Princeton University researchers Diane Alexander and Molly Schnell found that in the states in which advanced practice nurses had independent prescriptive authority, the suicide rate plummeted by 12%. As suicide numbers are rising to alarming rates in the US today, the need has only increased for mental health clinicians who can provide comprehensive integrative mental health care. So what are the education requirements for prescribing psychologists nationally? The requirements vary from state to state. The common denominator has been the MSCP, the Masters of Science in Clinical Psychopharmacology. In my state of Illinois, we have multi-tiered requirements that include the MSCP, a series of seven undergraduate basic science courses, the passing of a national exam in clinical psychopharmacology, the PEP, and the completion of a series of nine rotations in clinical medicine for a total of 1,620 hours over a period of not less than 14 months, not more than 28 months, not less than 26, 20 hours a week, not more than 30 hours a week. I've worked with my team to create rotation placements throughout the state and we continue to develop other healthcare systems for training, including in the state and county correctional systems. Prescribing psychologists in Illinois have as much as 17 years of formal education and training, consisting of between 16,000 and 20,000 hours. Healthcare is forever changed in our country. Prescribing psychologists are coming to be seen as providing optimal clinical care in every private and public healthcare setting, treating the underserved and the most at-risk vulnerable members of our community. Prescribing psychologists are and will continue to be strong leaders in the state of Illinois, throughout our country, and around the globe. Prescribing psychologists have the potential to increase access to care by 100% within the next 20 years. As the medical center psychiatrist said to me in 2014, our patients need us. Let's do this together. Thanks, Beth. Uh, Becca, first, I'd like to apologize. You're an associate professor, not an assistant professor. Um, and I know that takes work to work your way up. So I apologize for that mistake. Uh, Becca, you're a psychiatrist and you're president of the American Psychiatric Association. So I know you have a lot to say on this subject, and I'm very interested to hear what you think about it. So over to you. Thank you so much, Jeff. And thank you so much, Beth, for starting us out. Um, as you mentioned, I um, am the president of the American Psychiatric Association, the oldest medical association in the United States and the largest professional organization of psychiatrists with more than 37,000 members. And like my psychiatric colleagues, I completed a minimum of 12,000 hours and by all accounts, more than 15,000 hours of learning and medical training in order to gain the knowledge, skills, experience and expertise to treat patients with mental illness including with the use of medications. I'm so pleased to be participating with my colleagues in this important panel today on meeting the mental health needs of every American during this time of unprecedented need precipitated by the COVID-19 pandemic. It's such an honor to be here with my colleagues across disciplines to generate innovative and evidence-based ideas to ensure that every American has access to timely, high-quality, evidence-based and affordable mental health care. I differ in my stance from um, my colleague who opened, um, and I want to be sure to highlight two central reasons why. There are two requirements that any approach to treating mental illness must account for, safety and effectiveness. 
both clinical effectiveness and responsible steward stewardship of resources, or more simply put, cost effectiveness. In short, neither the safety nor efficacy of psychologist prescribing programs are presently supported by data. Let me start with safety. Safety is paramount. We are caring for people's lives. More than half of patients with mental illness have at least one underlying medical condition, and persons living with serious mental illness have vast unmet medical, medical needs associated with a 25-year shorter lifespan than those in the general population. Mental health professionals who prescribe medications require comprehensive medical education, training, and supervision in the care of patients with a broad range and severity of medical conditions. The few studies that have investigated the safety of psychologists prescribing have not established that they're safe. For example, the General Accounting Office in 1997 assessed a small military demonstration project and concluded that psychologists prescribing was of questionable safety, quote unquote, and should not be continued. Medicare to the present day does not pay for psychologists to prescribe because according to Medicare, they do not have the quote, knowledge and ability to perform evaluation and management services, unquote. Most recently, an assessment by Washington State in considering psychologist prescribing laws concluded that there is not sufficient evidence that the proposed education in the bill was sufficient to ensure patient safety. Any solution to the current mental health emergency must be safe for patients, for every patient. Second, the effectiveness of psychologist prescribing programs has not been established. In more than 20 years of psychologist prescribing programs, there are fewer than 250 prescribing psychologists in the country, which includes all psychologists in the Department of Defense, Indian Health Service, and, this, and all the states. Studies from the GAO, including the one cited in the Cato Brief, have concluded that prescribing psychologist programs are high cost and low yield. To address the critical need for mental health resources, we need high-yield, low-cost solutions instead. The American Psychiatric Association has championed cost-effective and high-yield innovations, such as the collaborative care model that it can increase the number of patients a single psychiatrist can treat in conjunction with a primary care or pediatrics team and a care manager by as much as 20-fold. Telemedicine and incentives to practice in underserved areas are other promising solutions that can achieve both equity and cost and outcomes effective care. I so look forward to continuing this conversation with my colleagues on the call today. I'm pleased to be here to generate forward-thinking solutions to provide high-quality, evidence-based, cost-effective, and most importantly, safe mental health care to every American. Thank you for having me today. Thank you, Becca. Tom, you too are a psychiatrist, and I know you're one of the mentors in the Illinois program that provides clinical training to prescribing psychologists. So I suspect you don't agree with everything that Dr. Brendel just said. I'd like to hear what your experience has been supervising RXPs and what you think about the uh, idea. Well, I think that my own past history kind of prepared me for the role of uh, being, being in a collaborative role with the psychologists uh, as they seek their training. Uh, I started in the hospital at the age of 17 as a dishwasher and did everything from orderly to nurse to psychiatric physician. Um, and along the way came to recognize that 
every discipline, every peer has their own strengths and weaknesses and that we can utilize uh, the strengths of uh, certain of our peers uh, to help them to maximize their potential. Um, I have always loved to teach and so I was happy when the administration at the Alexian Brothers Center for Mental Health came and asked me if I would be involved in the training program for the prescribing psychologists. From the first work that I did with the psychologists, I was very much impressed that there was a distinct difference in the way that psychologists view the importance of assessment and diagnosis of patients. And that that is something that I think really sometimes gets lost in uh, psychiatry when we get so overloaded and so rushed that it's difficult to take the time that we need to, ad to do uh, adequate uh, assessment and specific diagnosis. So uh, from the time that we started working together, I recognized that very often there was a real parity in terms of I would learn from the psychologist and they would learn from me and there would be that kind of back and forth in their training. Um, they have significant uh, medical training by the time they get to this position. By the time they enter into their fellowship of uh, clinical uh, studies, they've already had, uh, as Beth mentioned, a two-year master's level uh, course specifically in psychopharmacology. So specifically focusing on all of the meds, all of the interactions, all of the drug-drug uh, information that you have to be looking for. Uh, and my, the, the other thing is, is that after they've taken that course, to move on, they have to complete what's called the PEP uh, exam, which tests them over that material. And it's quite a comprehensive, quite a difficult exam uh, and demonstrates that they have a real mastery of the knowledge of, of basic psychopharmacology. Then when they have finished that, um, they, they also have had to go through all of the basic science that any uh, pre-med student would have had, biology and chemistry and organic chemistry and microbiology and uh, all of those disciplines. Uh, they've had to go through those in preparation for their clinical studies. And then in their clinical studies, uh, they go through rotations in psychiatry, family practice, internal medicine, surgery, um, endocrinology, geriatrics, pediatrics, and OBGYN uh, in either a one-month or a two-month rotation. So there really is no area of medical study that's been left out. And post-graduation, the, uh, the fellows that I've had that I uh, am in a collaborative relationship with uh, have demonstrated to me by the questions that they ask in the course of uh, their prescribing uh, exactly the kind of things that I would hope they would be considering from the medical point of view, the concerns that they have about treating diabetic patients, the concerns that they have about treating patients 
uh, with uh, uh, things like MS or uh, other neuromuscular diseases. Um, so I, I have been very pleased that they are not at all hesitant to ask for help or ask for questions uh, when they need to, to get the assistance. And that collaborative re uh, relationship goes on for the life of the uh, prescribing psychologist or the life of the, uh, the uh, collaborative physician uh, on into the future. So it's mandated that they meet for one hour a month with their collaborator through the course of their practice. Okay. Oh, thank you. But I should add, uh, just for viewers, that what you just described, of course, is the requirements in Illinois to become a licensed clinic uh, prescribing psychologist. The other four states might have might vary to a, one degree or another. But so, uh, just for for viewers to know. Uh, so all this time now, we've been talking about you, Claudia. <laughs> You're, um, you share a distinction of being the only member of this panel who actually is a prescribing psychologist. So, uh, and I know you got your license in two states. So I'd like you to describe to us uh, how you became a prescribing psychologist because you weren't you were originally not a prescribing psychologist and how, it, how your practice is going in, in Louisiana and how you're received by the medical community. Well, thank you. And I also prescribe in Illinois, just to be clear about that. But thank you for inviting me to talk with you today. The first thing that I want you to know is that the work of a prescribing psychologist is fascinating, useful, and fulfilling. It's good work. To become a prescribing psychologist, I've completed over 20,000 hours of training in assessment, diagnostic, psychopharmacology, and psychotherapeutic techniques. I've completed undergraduate pre-med training, including chemistry, biology, anatomy, physiology, and medical terminology. I've passed a national examination in clinical psychology and the national exam for prescriptive authority for psychologists. I've completed a year-long psychology internship, a year of postdoctoral training in neuropsychology, and most recently, 14 months of medical rotations across nine different medical specialties. And of course, yearly, I complete multiple psychological and psychiatric seminars to obtain CEs and CMEs. The work of a prescribing psychologist changes, of course, depending upon your setting and your interests. I work in three places, a large group providing a full range of psychological services to adults and children, a gender affirmation surgical team, and as an independent prescribing psychologist in private practice. So as you can see, it was hard, interesting work getting here, and I'm glad I did it. I know how challenging it is for my patients, many of whom are LGBTQ plus BIPOC individuals, to obtain quality management of psychotropic medications, let alone quality psychological treatment. I'm truly grateful to have the skills to provide both. One of the things that's different now that I'm prescribing is using tools such as the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program to determine what medications have been prescribed for my patients by other providers. It's more common than not for patients to forget to mention one prescription or another, let alone their over-the-counter medications. Any medication a patient takes from any source could interact with the medications I choose to prescribe, so I need that information. But let's get back to treatment relationships. We have the opportunity to shape our practices in ways that suit our personalities. For me, I like to vary my work with my, my week with clinical work, training students, interacting with other professionals. I see patients for therapy only, 
but I also bring my knowledge of physiological systems and psychotropic medications to that work. Some patients are appropriate for a combination of psychotropic medication management and individual psychotherapy. Usually I see these patients for a full 45 to 50 minute session. As a psychologist, I have the freedom to see the patient weekly, which other prescribers rarely can do. Prescribing psychologists bring a psychologist training and listening to patients. We know how to join with patients in their hopes and concerns around topics in their lives and about medications. We know how to create therapeutic relationships that are conducive to healing, growth, and change. There are some patients who are very stable on their psychotropic medications, functioning well and happy in their lives. With them, I can meet for 30 minutes once a month or even less often if appropriate to manage their psychotropic medications, support their progress, and watch for any emergence of symptoms related to their diagnoses. I also manage psychotropic medications for patients of other mental health clinicians. I build relationships with the providers and their patients, supporting the therapist's work and goals. When I know the current work of the psychotherapist with their patient, I can support their work while addressing psychotropic medication management. If it's a group practice, I can attend their staffings and add my views to theirs about their patients. I provide trainings for groups of therapists about their patients' psychotropic medication, and I'm surprised at one question that frequently is asked, how do I talk to the patient's psychiatrist? That question was both literal in that they didn't know how to contact the psychiatrist, and it was more intellectual. How do I effectively relate my concerns to the patient's psychiatrist? Carefully addressing that question alone seemed to make the clinicians I've spoken to happy that I presented to their group. My medical rotations have helped me to learn how to efficiently and clearly talk with medically trained professionals. One of the medical rotations I completed was with the gender affirmation surgical team. I was able to view a full range of gender affirming surgical procedures. Now that I'm licensed as a prescriber, I work with them and their patients who are seeking gender related surgical care. Another aspect of my work is that I can unprescribe psychotropic medicines that are not appropriate for a patient. LGBTQ plus BIPOC people are at risk to have had prescriptive decisions made through the lens of either a lack of culturally specific knowledge or outright prejudice. As a prescribing psychologist, I can build an understanding of the person within their culture and determine if I can unprescribe or change medications. In other situations also, if the prescriber only has one tool, the prescription pad, that is what they will use to help someone. An example I give is a prescriber at a group home. The youth in question was acting out behaviorally, disrupting the unit, the police were often called, and the prescriber was asked repeatedly, do something. They tried, but adding on more and more medications didn't work. A prescribing psychologist has the skills to look at the system as well as the child. We can assess when the acting out happens, what triggers it, and what can be done with the environment and in psychotherapy that can reduce the child's reactivity. We can make changes in psychological treatment, the environment, and a prescribing psychologist can address medications, often lowering them to more appropriate levels. In my last few seconds, I'd like to talk about the mindset as a prescribing psychologist. When I meet with a patient, I'm doing what all psychologists do in initial sessions. My mind is working on multiple levels at a time. First and foremost, creating a therapeutic relationship, listening to the person's concerns and goals, completing a mental status examination while I'm listening to the person and beginning to formulate what tools I'll use to help the person achieve a better quality of life. 
What is added into that process is deciding if any of the symptoms I identify would be helped by using a psychotropic medication. If so, the thought process is which class of medication or medications, what specific drugs in those classes, and what dose to start with. If I decide medication is warranted, I must learn the patient's physiological health by taking vitals, ordering labs, and communicating with their medical providers. The therapeutic relationship that can be built while providing both psychotherapy and psychotropic medication management can increase a patient's ability to take medications as prescribed. We all know that on an average, 50% of medications are not taken correctly. Prescribing psychologists have the time to answer questions, to address concerns, and to develop behavioral changes that will facilitate taking medications as prescribed. I've used all my time, but I look forward to our discussion. Thank you, Claudia. Is anybody interested in commenting on what has been said so far? Otherwise, uh, oh yeah, in fact, Rebecca, you said you'd like to speak to variations in state law. So go ahead. Yeah, thank you. And thank you so much to my colleagues for sharing their experience and their commitment, like all of us in the mental health professions, to make sure that every American gets the mental health treatment that they, uh, that they deserve. Um, you know, the, the, uh, one of the things that stands out here is uh, talking about individuals and small sample sizes and how much training and education exists. And I want to point out that uh, there have been many proposals for state, um, state laws for psycho prescribing psychologists that really do not ensure the safety of patients. For example, a proposal in Ohio would allow a psychologist with under 500 hours, uh, 16 of those optional, and a 150 question multiple choice test, fully online education, and um, pass-fail classes uh, to prescribe medications. Uh, that is not safe. In Washington state, there, was no, there were no safeguards and no oversight. Uh, so we have to be very, very cautious here about concluding that small sample sizes and small um, and individual experience um, can, uh, can ensure access to care, improve access, uh, and take care of patients safely. We simply do not have enough data to establish that that is the case. I also want to make a critical, critically important point about equity. Uh, our fiduciary responsibilities, our code of medical ethics uh, requires that we treat patients equally um, and that we give the highest quality care to every patient. Uh, we've talked about a number of um, groups of patients who need care most desperately. Those who are involved in the criminal legal system, we know in particular of the challenges for the LBQ, LGBTQ plus community in accessing health care and mental health care. We must do better to ensure that everyone has access to the same high quality care. Uh, that is um, both sensitive, studied, and safe. We simply need the data to do that. It's our obligation. Does anybody want to respond uh, to, uh, Beth, you, you want to respond? Yes, okay. thank you. Go yeah, ahead. Beck, it's, it's great to hear from you. I'm glad we're having this dialogue. Um, so we have, um, there are many different legislate, legislative proposals around the country. Um, we have prescribing psychologists in five states. Um, we have it in, in the military, as you mentioned, on Indian health 
um, various tribal lands, uh, and we have it in US, uh, um, sorry, US Public Health Service, um, US Coast Guard, um, and over for almost 30 years, prescribing psychologists have been prescribing um, without any serious, unexpected, adverse um, incidents. So I think we have to look at what we've been doing and how we've been treating our communities, working with the most vulnerable in our communities. Um, and we've had um, very good results. Um, there are always the concerns. There always could be something um, that could happen um, that would be uh, unexpected, that would be a problem for any of us treating. Um, our liability insurance is quite, quite low for prescribing psychologists. Um, so, and, and every training program continues to train um, very vigorously the, the psychologists who are going through those programs. So I think that, um, and, all, and these programs have been um, approved by or designated by the American Psychological Association. We take exams um, and as uh, Claudia can test to, we um, prescribing psychologists take many, many exams over the five years, over the, the many, many hours um, that, of training that we do. Um, so we, we are here to say that we do prescribe safely and effectively. We are continuing to do research. I'm actually organizing a major research, stu research study on prescribing psychologists around the country, um, and we will have more documented empirical results coming up. Um, but for now, we know that we have, we have prescribing psychologists who are prescribing successfully. Um. Becca, do you want to, uh, you, you signaled that you want to talk about that there's no standard of care, or is that the same standard of care as for physicians? Yeah, so, you know, um, on the topic of liability, uh, psychiatrists and physicians are held to a medical standard of care um, in terms of their responsibility, which is not the same um, as that by, by non-physicians. It's a, a higher medical standard of care. I think we need to be really, really clear on how we collaborate and bring our skills to the equation to take care of patients in the most effective way. Um, you know, the, whether um, in all the years, as you mentioned, Beth, of a psychologist prescribing, we're still talking about very, very small numbers, about 250, right? So the impact on access to care uh, has not been demonstrated. Um, in fact, the GAO uh, 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 recommended stopping the pilot within the military because uh, it was felt to not contribute to military readiness and to actually be more costly than maintaining the psychologist and psychiatrist as they were um, already practicing. And while that is an old study, uh, the uh, subsequent data has not proven that this pathway uh, increases access for Americans to high quality evidence-based mental health care. A final piece that we really haven't talked about is there are a number of our colleagues on mental health teams missing uh, from this panel today. There are so many alternative pathways uh, that involve uh, medical training, uh, nurse practitioners, physician's assistants who work in collaboration with psychiatrists and other physicians in teams of care to address physical and mental illness. And it's so critically important to remember that we are all resources that our patients need. And the question is, how do we most effectively, most cost-effectively, and most clinically effectively use the talents and skills that we have together 
uh, to make sure that we in, uh, increase access and improve outcomes. One of the ways that's been demonstrated time and time again, both with measurement of clinical outcomes, uh, as well as cost effectiveness, is the collaborative care model, uh, which is something that the American Psychiatric Association has supported and championed, uh, and really increases the availability of a psychiatrist to be involved in and oversee the management of patients in conjunction with a pediatrician or a primary care physician and a care manager by a factor of a 20-fold, right? So this is a, an intervention that is measurement-based, it's evidence-based, it's monitored, it's been studied. And um, we, can, we also really need to look at uh, how we can change our care model, not just to put more providers uh, in... Uh, <coughs> and more professionals doing one-to-one -one treatment, but actually increasing capacity beyond the traditional care models. Uh, let me make one more final point um, about this, which is really important to look at. Just because we have providers, uh, people who can uh, learn, uh, motivated uh, professionals, uh, who have expertise doesn't mean that it's actually good for patients. So one study that stands out, not in the mental health space, but regarding uh, nurse practitioners um, in a medical system came out of um, Mississippi in the Hattiesburg Clinic, uh, where they piloted a program because of their confidence in their physician assistant and nurse practitioner colleagues to have them be independent, uh, have their own panels of patients. And it turned out that, that a study that was convened to look at the effectiveness of that care showed both uh, poorer outcomes and a uh, higher cost um, in a system where there was great confidence. So we can't just base this on our confidence in our own practice, our confidence in the training of individual colleagues. We really have to look systematically at data uh, and make sure that we're leading with established patient safety. We cannot give patients care that is not demonstrated to be safe when we know that we have safe alternatives. I think it's important to, to point out, though, that the Government Accounting Office report on the military project uh, stated clearly that the prescribing psychologists performed very well, just as well as the psychiatrists. They just said that it did not save the military any money. Uh, I don't think anybody here is, is uh, making the argument uh, for states allowing psychologists to prescribe simply as an argument to save the healthcare system money. It's an argument to increase access to mental health services because we're underutilizing a, a portion of the mental health workforce that can uh, provide these extra services, especially when you consider the shortage of psychiatrists. Um, did oh, you want to say I just have to disagree with you about that for a second because the 1997 GAO report actually did question the safety of the program. So I, I, I'm not, uh, it didn't say that it wasn't safe. The safety has not been established and was also not established in the 1999 GAO report on a systemic level, though it did say that the psychologists who were prescribing were well integrated into the teams in which they worked. So I just want us to be really careful about what evidence we're citing. We are talking about patients' lives. And so we have to be very, very cautious in how we characterize the data and being sure that we're all living up to our professional responsibilities to individuals and systems. Okay, Beth, did you want to respond? Because I just also wanted to work in 
a question that a viewer submitted. By the way, again, if you have questions, you can enter them at the Cato event website or at YouTube or Facebook or Twitter using the hashtag Cato Health. Uh, a questioner says, and if safety was a concern, wouldn't we see evidence of that in states that have RxPs such as Louisiana and New Mexico for greater than 20 years? Is there evidence of unsafe practices in those states by RxPs, i.e. absence of evidence is not evidence of absence? So I'll kind of turn that now. Now you could have your uh, make your response, Beth. Yeah, there, there's no evidence of of poor care, and in fact, there's evidence of very good care. In fact, in New Mexico, um, access to care has been increased almost 100 percent because of the number of prescribing psychologists that are now prescribing in the state of New Mexico. Um, if the military thought that it was a bad idea, they wouldn't have prescribing psychologists in the military right now. We have over 30 prescribing psychologists in the military, and um, every year more psychologists come in to prescribe. We have a dire need in, in, our, in our country and around our world. Um, as we've talked about, and as we've evidenced, we have 16,000 to 20,000 hours of training of those of us who are trained in Illinois, in other, in other states, it's between 12 and 16,000 hours of training, which is equivalent to what psychiatrists are trained in. Um, we have many, many years of experience, many, many years of being very competent, clinical psychologists and working with our patients. And now we have this additional tremendous amount of uh, training, significant amounts of training. And we are, we are working with our patients in broader ways to be able to provide um, treatment um, at really optimal levels. So you know, I, I, we're going to go back and forth. We don't want to do that um, for the rest of this, of this uh, program. But, um, but I'm here, and many of us are here today, to stand up for the durability, for the strength um, for the rigor of the kind of training that prescribing psychologists get. Um, you know, when I, before we go to taking some questions, I, I have a question. I have a couple of questions. Um, when I was hearing uh, Tom dis discuss the, uh, the way it works in Illinois, we have to, in addition to your clinical psychopharmacology training and the exam and all that, you have to do nine clinical rotations on like surgery, obstetrics, gynecology, family right. practice, I'm thinking to myself, uh, you know, I'm, let me ask both MDs on the panel, how much do you think your experience in delivering babies, uh, holding retractors, a major abdominal surgical case, or uh, uh, any of those other kind of uh, active specialties in medicine has made you better at providing mental health? Because I could tell you as a surgeon, a lot of the other rotations that I had in order before I was able to graduate medical school, uh, unless I've engaged in them in, in the practice of general surgery, a lot of that I've kind of gotten as faded from memory or gotten rusty. For example, I don't remember a whole lot from my psychiatry rotation. And I spent two months on a psychiatry rotation at a psychiatric hospital. So how important do you think it is to rotate through those other medical specialties? I know the other states don't require that, but Illinois does, nine medical rotations. So let me uh, start with, how about we start with Tom, because he is involved with one of them, and then I'll ask uh, Becca. I think there, I think there are two uh, point views, uh, points of view when it comes to uh, medical knowledge and patient care with psychiatrists. You know, one, one idea says you hang up your stethoscope when you get out of medical school and you become a psychiatrist and you never use those things again. 
And I really don't agree with that. You know, I think we have to be thinking physicians. I think some of the rotations like internal medicine and family medicine are more important for the psychologists than say necessarily, you know, surgery or pediatrics where they're not going to be dealing with uh, pediatric patients because of the restrictions on their practice. Uh, but I think that those are more, uh, more cogent than we would initially think because there's always that place where a diagnosis or a condition, you know, comes to mind when you're treating a person and you make a referral to your colleague and it's exactly what it was that you were thinking about. Um, I, I, and I think that it also gives them a sense of the complexity of, of the treatment of the human being, you know, and, and what all conditions uh, humans can suffer from. Becca, you want to comment as well or? Yeah, sure. You know, one of one of the conversations that's going on as medical care becomes more and more specialized are what are the optimal combinations of rotations, experience, knowledge, training, skills, acquisition to be a competent medical physician. Um, and as things become more specialized, it becomes even increasingly important to be sure uh, that for those of us who are involved in the medical care of patients, we understand what's happening throughout, um, throughout the body. So we know that many of the medications that we prescribe affect other medications that are metabolized in the liver. We know that kidney function is related, and we know that uh, almost any organ system can be affected by the medications that we prescribe. So I would say that um, that psychiatrist, um, a consultation liaison psychiatrist, I spend a lot of time working with patients who are medically ill. And we know for those patients with uh, the same medical illness, those with comorbid mental illness or mental illness at the same time have poorer outcomes. And, and we know that individuals with primary, illness, uh, primary mental illness have poorer outcomes for, um, for medical uh, conditions as well. So what we're really asking is what is the optimal training uh, when it comes to medical training? What do we need to know to take care of patients? And what's very, very clear and remains the position of the American Psychiatric um, Association is that that's the requisite medical knowledge, uh, knowledge, skills, experience, and supervision over time uh, to have uh, the body of knowledge and experience uh, to treat the whole patient. That's where, uh, that's what we're looking at. And with my colleagues here, even though uh, we are on different sides of this particular very, very narrow question about, um, about prescribing, uh, what the central question really has to be is how can we all bring the varied experience, knowledge, and training that we have together to come up with a system of care that provides the very, very best medical care and mental health care to every patient and every person in America uh, that uh, the citizens of this country deserve. We spend more money per capita on medical care, right, than uh, most places, if not all, depending on how you calculate it, around the globe. How is it that we do not have the best outcomes? That's where we need to be focusing on our all, all of our attention, how we come together to innovate in a system rather than come up with small scale solutions in the order of, of a couple of hundred per, uh, individuals prescribing and think about reimagining our system with all of our skills and expertise to take care of the whole patient. Uh, Beth, I think I saw you nodding your head uh, in, in agreement. Uh, 
So I'd like to hear what you have to <laughs> well, say. I about think it. I, I'm in agreement that we all need to work together. We have, there are so many people who are in dire need of mental health treatment. We all need to be able to, to provide care, provide competent, optimal care for these patients. And we do, we do that. Um, the military, um, the GAO has found that military prescribing psychologists are excellent providers of mental health care, and they continue to provide that mental health care. And there's no clear data that medical school is the only way to get a medical education, to be able to, to treat patients, to give them mental health care. Um, they, as a matter of fact, in, um, the GAO also said that they, they reduced the number of years that military prescribing psychologists were being trained from three years to two years. Um, and psychologists have been prescribing medical psychologists have been uh, trained um, for less than the, the number of hours that we are having to um, to train in Illinois. So it's not clear that there's just one solution. It's not just medical school. I think we're looking at all those solutions. And right now, um, we Illinois is, is training um, to the greatest extent than any other prescribing psychologist around the country, but it doesn't mean that that's optimal. Our care is optimal. All of prescribing psychologists' care is optimal. We do a very good job with our patients and we've increased access to our patients. I think uh, Dr. Mosher had something to say or Claudia. I, I wanted to ask uh, Claudia before, uh, before you say what you wanna say, I wanna work this, well, go ahead and say what you wanna say to this, then I, then I have a question I wanna ask you, go ahead. Okay, sure. Well, I'm thrilled to hear the psychiatrists are working to become more accessible. That is really important and I'm glad to hear that that, that process is, is being built. Uh, however, that doesn't mean there's not still a need for us. And in Illinois, Half of the counties do not have psychiatrists. I don't know how you can be more accessible when you're not there. We're there. And the argument that, well, there's not enough of you yet, it's kind of a circular argument in that we've been blocked from being able to become prescribing psychologists in many states. And now we're being said, well, there's not enough of you. We do wonderful work with our patients. I am told by my patients on a daily basis, thank you, Dr. Mosier, for taking time to listen to me, for hearing my concerns, and for working with me, uh, both on my medications and on my questions about the quality of my life. The, these same arguments happen over and over again, but I don't see them playing out in real life. And I'll stop here because I know there's a lot of people. Yeah, I want a lot of time for some more questions, but I, I want to ask you specifically, Claudia, I've, I've seen arguments raised by clinical psychologists and academics that, uh, that one of the risks of allowing psychologists to prescribe is that they could eventually be, be kind of just morph into basically just being prescribers and uh, get more into that and less into talk therapy, which is what, what is their forte. Um, uh, on the converse of that is I've, I've read articles, for example, by Dr. Daniel Carlat, he's a psychiatrist at Tufts, who thinks the converse, which is it'll make, it's good, the competition is good for, for psychiatrists because it will make them uh, in, in, in include much more talk therapy in their therapy because over the years, psychiatrists have gotten away from that and uh, uh, a great many of them just prescribe and don't do talk therapy. So what, what do you think about, has it made you get more focused on prescribing and less focused on talk therapy? And what do you think about that, that point that was raised? Well, if I had wanted to become a psychiatrist, I would have become a psychiatrist. I really value 
the training a psychologist has. I really value the, with the way that we can assess, diagnose, treat, join with our patients to be able to provide optimum care. Some of the psychiatrists that I work with, sometimes they're a little envious because I do have time to do individual psychotherapy and not just run patients every 10 minutes. Um, I feel I'm in a wonderful position. If a patient needs short-term work, I can do short-term work. If a patient needs longer-term medicine and psychotherapy, I can do that. If a patient just needs psychotherapy, I do that. I have such a range of tools because I'm a psychologist who also can prescribe. Um, Becca, you want to say something about access and then I want to start taking some questions. Yeah, so, you know, if we're using access to, we all agree that we need access to more mental health care, right? And I think um, uh, both uh, psychiatrists have a training um, and are required to demonstrate core competencies in talk therapies um, and psychotherapy as well as prescribing. So uh, it's not that um, psychiatrists can't do things. The question about access though is an important one to look at because it's often used as a justification for psychologist prescribing programs and in follow-ups of, of prescribing psychologists, 20% uh, have moved out of state or are no longer prescribing, and 59% are practicing in urban areas. So, um, you know, when we think about and make arguments about uh, improving access, let's also think about things like telemedicine. Let's think about different models of care that are currently not supported by the American Psychological Association, like collaborative care, that do um, increase access by up to a factor of 20 uh, for a single psychiatrist. Uh, you're working with a medical team and a care manager. And let's really think about the best way of getting high quality team-based mental health care to every American. That's what we're really talking about here. And let's really talk about the way that we can do that to each bring the highest level of expertise and training and safe treatment to our patients. Okay, I wanna go take, because we're running out of time, so I wanna take some questions. One of them is directed at me, uh, anonymous says, Dr. Singer, you mentioned that you hardly remember your psychiatry rotation. Do you feel it would have been better if you had been able to remember some of it? Uh, it's, it's interesting that you bring up that point. Um, first of all, because of that, uh, at least I remember enough to know when I should get help. So I usually, when I'm in a situation like that, I, I call for help and I, I consult either a psychiatrist or a psychologist. But, but you also bring to mind another interesting point. I'm a licensed physician in my state. As such, I could prescribe any medication. And I could legally, I'm licensed to prescribe psychiatric medication. There's nothing that stops you from doing it. I don't do it because I don't know enough about it. And if somebody asks me to, I tell them I don't want to. I'd rather you see somebody who knows about this. But the irony is somebody like Claudia, who's done, who's got a master's degree in clinical psychopharmacology, knows a whole lot more about clinical psychopharmacology than I do and I ever even am interested in knowing about it. In, in, in my state, she could not prescribe a psychiatric med, whereas I can. So uh, now let me take other questions. This one says, uh, uh, this is from Kay Fisher. I don't know, uh, I'll, I'll decide who to direct it to first. The incidence of mental illnesses in the military is far lower than that in the general population. And no psychologist prescribing legislation introduced to date would set requirements that are comparable to the level of training received Psychologists, by psychologists in, in the military's PDP program. Um, 
does does anybody here know is that true that the incidence of mental illness is is lower in the military uh claudia it's not my area so i don't want to be the one to jump in and talk about that oh I, okay oh. So i thought you were somebody wants to say something uh what Beth? what yeah, what we know is that suicides are at um, the highest rates in military than they've ever been. Um, and um, and the requirements um, in Illinois are certainly more vigorous, more rigorous than what the requirements were for the PDP um, military psychologists in the, in the 1990s. Um, so uh, psychologists are trained, again, trained very, very rigorously around the country. Um, that we, we all are operating at optimal levels. We're providing optimal care. Um, and the military um, is, a, is an institution in our country that is very much in dire need of, of more prescribers to, who are able to provide comprehensive integrative care. Okay, and anybody else wanna say anything about that? Uh, another question is, uh, how, this is from Jack P. How many RXPs in New Mexico and Illinois work in rural areas. Do you know the answer to that, Beth? I know that we have, I don't know the exact number in New Mexico. Um, New Mexico is largely a rural state and there are prescribing psychologists around the state of New Mexico. Um, today in Illinois, we have 13 licensed prescribing psychologists. We have 50 psychologists who are currently in training to become prescribing psychologists. Um, those numbers are going to increase exponentially over the next several years. Um, and some of those prescribing psychologists are in rural areas and we will continue to get more psychologists in rural areas. We're, we're in central Illinois, we're in Southern Illinois, um, as well as in Northern Illinois, which is, tends to be more urban. Uh, anonymous here has a question for Dr. Brendel. How do, you how do you think about balancing risk in terms of lack of empirical evidence supporting RXP safety versus the often three to six month wait times to see a psychiatrist within community health centers almost exclusively impacting marginalized individuals. That's a complicated sentence. Did you follow it's that? It's a complicated sentence, but here, here's what I want to what I want to say, and I know everyone on this panel will agree with me. We cannot allow Americans to wait for three to six months to access high quality. Um, evidence-based and measurement-based mental health treatment. That's something that we know has to change. We're working actively. We've supported legislation in Congress. We're working on a national level uh, to uh, come up with innovation, with models of care, including collaborative care uh, that uh, does have substantial and significant positive data, both on outcomes and cost effectiveness, and to work within our membership about how we meet our responsibility to the American public uh, in providing uh, high quality mental health care. That's what we all agree about. Uh, we could talk about, and I hope that we'll have the opportunity to do that in the future, talk about all the different ways that we can be, meet, meet the need in scalable solutions. Uh, the solutions we've talked about today, let me just make clear, are talking about fewer than 250 per, uh, prescribing psychologists over a 20-year period. That's not scalable right now, and, it's, and it is high-cost um, uh, and low impact. We really need to be thinking about the models of care that we're developing in order to ensure high quality mental health treatment. I'd like to say we actually reduce the cost of mental health for our, for our patients and for our communities because patients who come to see us who are prescribing psychologists, they only have to see one person rather than go to two people for, for a prescription to be, to be written. So we're actually reducing costs for our population. 
Um, we're running out of time. I want to, Tom, you I haven't heard from you in a while. I'll give you the last word. Anything you want to chime in on this? Well, I think that, you know, it is uh, a, a, a discipline in progress, um, but it's been around a long time. Um, my own personal experiences are just that. And I want to say to Becca, I, I recognize that. I can only speak for me in Northern Illinois right now, but my own experiences have been excellent people being trained in an excellent manner and doing excellent work postgraduate. So hopefully what will catch on is, you know, through the APA's uh, push uh, is the continuation of excellence in training. And, uh, you know, not so much should this happen or will this continue to happen, but how can we be best involved in helping it happen in the best way possible? Um, okay, Beth, you I, I'd something? like to say, I'd like to say that in, in Illinois, um, the psychiatrists removed their opposition to our legislation. And then we were able to pass our legislation and the legislators said to us, we're so glad the trade associations could agree on this. Um, if all psychiatrists would remove their opposition to our legislation, we would have hundreds of thousands of more um, providers, prescribing psychologists who would be providing highly competent, optimal care. So I'd like let's to all go ahead and, and be able to work through our legislation, legislators, so that we can provide that care for the communities who are in such dire need. I'm told by our staff, I have time for one more question. So I'm going to ask this one, uh, but we need a quick answer because we are almost out of time. This is by Jack P to Dr. Ron Reimer initially spoke of the needs in jails. I worked in the jails for 15 years. How many of the RXPs in Illinois work in the jails? Obviously my concern is that professionals often don't want to work in underserved areas for many reasons, including reimbursement. You know the answer I'm to that I'm very happy to say, I'm very happy to say that we have about five psychologists today who are working in the prisons and who are being trained as prescribing psychologists so that they, and they will be staying in the prisons um, to work there. So uh, there's great need in our jails. We, I talked about <clears throat> Tom Dart and we have psychologists who are, who are very much fulfilling that mission. One of our, yeah. one of our current fellows is the head psychologist at Stateville in Joliet, Illinois, and is currently training to get his RXP and plans to continue in the correction system. Well, with that, we are now definitely out of time. I'm really sorry. I have lots and lots of questions piling up. We couldn't take all of your questions. Um, and uh, I, I want to encourage viewers to, to visit the, the event webpage where you'll see under um, additional resources, we list other things, other readings, including the policy brief that I came out with today on the subject. Uh, and this is, is being recorded and archived. So later on, that then you'll be uh, able to watch it within the next 24 hours. You can be able to watch it online and share it. Thank you for all of our panelists for uh, participating in this very interesting discussion that could have gone on a lot longer. Um, and uh, uh, again, visit the Cato website. Thank you.